Well, good evening, and thank you for coming. Um, I don't know how many of you have been to one of these things before, one of these sort of seminars that we do. We tend to do them each summer in the uh, big sort of teaching series where we go into a book of the Bible in a lot of detail. Um, and so what I'm planning to, but the way I'm planning to do it tonight is I'm planning firstly to give a little overview of the whole book using the front page of the notes you're now receiving. So try not to be the person who spends the whole time just reading the notes so that nothing, you know, at the start and not listening to anything because then it'll be confusing later on. But um, that front page, we'll talk through that for a, for a moment just so you can get a sort of placement of the whole book. And then I'm going to just go through, read and comment on Revelation 8 and 9 and for a bit. And the reason I'm going to do that is two reasons. One, it is a... I think the strangest chapter in the whole Bible is Revelation 9. I think it is the weirdest of the weird. And I, I think in a setting like this, you can do it in a way that Sunday would be hard. And also because I felt like doing four chapters this next Sunday would be too much. So we're going to take two chapters out of Sunday and do them tonight. But not like a whole preach. But I just want to in, introduce, and introduce you to them. And then at that point, we're going to do our, the famed clapometer. If you haven't done this before, what I tend to do is introduce the various things that I think you might want to talk about, and then we do a clapometer based on interest levels in those themes, and then I try and answer what you want to talk about um, based on how much you've clapped for them, and then we take questions on anything. And I have seen some of the questions that some of you have asked already, and... Well, if I tell you that one of them just one of them has been given to me as I walked in the room today, and one of them came on email in advance and included the term Apache helicopters, and I was thinking this is going to be great. So I don't I have no idea where this will go. It'll be good fun though. So uh, that's where I'm. You know, overview of Revelation, Revelation eight and nine, the clapometer going to some specific areas, and then anything you want to know, talk about about anything. And by the way, I'll I hope I will tell you if I don't know because the, the chances are that on a bunch of stuff I won't. But we are going to have a couple of. Um, Slides up, I think, and then and one of them is this overview page, um, which is a sort of a, a grid. Oh my goodness, they formatted and everything. These guys are amazing. I literally gave that to someone two hours ago, and they've coloured. Oh, it's brilliant. Thank you very much, Tarek and others. Um, so this is my attempt to summarise the whole of Revelation in one page, and it skips lots of things. But what I'm trying to do in grouping it this way is to give you a schema for understanding where you are at any point. And if you're the kind of person who likes charts, um, then you can sit there on a Sunday smugly knowing where you are relative to your neighbor who goes, well, I've got a little bit lost in this. And you go, well, of course, we're in vision three, vision seven, or whatever it might be. But it's a way of trying to map it out so you can get a sense of where we are. We move from the left-hand end, right? The, the, there are four visions in Revelation. Vision number one, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And John says, this, that's how I know that a new vision is starting. Because he says, I was in the Spirit and I saw. I was in the vision on the Lord's day in Patmos and I saw Jesus and the church. Right? That's vision one. And we'll come back to the lines in a minute. Right? Vision two is the big, big beast in the middle. No pun intended on the word beast. And it's the vision in heaven where he says, at once I was in the Spirit and behold a, a door open in heaven. And so vision two is that long section in the middle, which has the, the heavenly vision we've just, the last two weeks we've preached on, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven visions, and seven bowls. And then those different visions are broken down one at a time, right? So you can see, well, bowl number one is earth, bowl two is sea, bowl, all that. So that, that's a, a sort of a schema of it. Vision three 
is in the wilderness. And again, I was in the spirit. He carried me away in the spirit to wilderness. And then there are again seven visions, as well as the overthrow of Babylon. And then vision four, which I had to squish. So it's side on. But vision four is, I was, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he sees the bride, the church. So the key, the theme of each of these things, just on this one page, if you go to the very bottom row, right? Jesus unveiled. The, ap- the apocalypse of Jesus, the, un- the unmasking, right, Page uh, is the first one. The un- unveiling of God's throne is the big one in the middle. God is sovereign over the whole, whole thing, even evil, and even the rising and falling of empires who are trying to kill the church. Then you have the unveiling of the harlot, and we will come back to that, I'm sure, and then the unveiling of the bride, which is the church, and then the new creation. And so that is like a sort of one-page cheat sheet for what is going on in the book with all of its sections broken down into little bits. That's not, as you can see, a timeline of history. I don't think, as you've probably picked up if you've been in any of the Sundays, I don't think that's the way to read the book at all. Uh, Although I think it relates to real events, I don't think that's the best way of mapping it. Chapter 1 is here and chapter 7. So we're in chapter 13 now. I don't think that's how it works. But if you see those four visions at the top, which reveal the four realities along the bottom... And then in between, you've got lots of sevens. And that's, the, that's basically the grid, okay? Might just take a little bit of processing time. So um, have a look, right? Turn to the person next to you and say, didn't understand a word of that, slash knew all of that already. In fact, that's my screensaver or something else, okay? But just what do you feel, anything you, initially that that prompts in you that you would just don't want to say to the person next to you, like, oh, I'm not sure I understand that. Or just turn to the person next to you and process what that screen is saying. So I have a really, a thing that I think is really cool about this, and I say cool in the loosest possible sense of that word, but if, you, if you're here on a Tuesday night, you're okay with the fact that this is not the coolest thing in the world, but I, and you don't care, and I love that. But if you look at the very bottom of the page, I think something I find really fascinating, but I don't know quite what to do with it, but I think it's there, is that the visions of John, if you think, in, in exile on Patmos, in the heavenly throne room in the temple, in the wilderness, and then a mountain that what John has done is given us four visions that are the Old Testament story backwards, right? So the Old Testament story ends with an exile, and that comes after the long period where they have a temple, and that comes after the period where they're wandering in the wilderness, and that comes after the period where they are made a nation at Mount Sinai. And just think it's quite interesting that for some reason John has flipped everything on its head in the way he's given his vision, right? He's done... The sequence of visions goes backwards through the Old Testament. It's as if, even in the structure of the book, John is saying, behold, I am making all things new. I just think it's a really beautiful... I'm not sure that quite what I would do with that in normal life. I just think it's one of those things we say, I think God has orchestrated this very well. And we're intended to see beauty and harmony in the way he's done it. We will, if you have questions on that specifically, we will come back to them. Okay, So we'll do that a, a little bit later. Um, but for now, I just want to spend a moment reading to you Revelation chapters 8 and 9. And if you have a Bible, you'll want to be there, I'm sure, because I'm afraid we aren't going to do the thing. Put it, I'm assuming a lot of you have got Bibles, and if you don't, reading it, hearing it is good anyway, as we know. Um, but what I wanted to do was to do the seven trumpets, and as you'll see, it's actually only six of them. Um, the seventh comes in chapter 11. But the seven trumpets, starting from where Steve finished reading on Sunday, uh, so starting at Revelation 8 and verse 6. And then moving through to the end of chapter 9. And you will, I hope, see why I say chapter 9 is the strangest chapter in the Bible. Um, you, in fact, we might have rival 
You say, I think it's actually Ezekiel 42 or whatever, which is fine too, but this is pretty weird. I think you'll agree, and so it's worth digging into what's going on. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 6. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Whoa, 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 to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon, which means destroyer. Right? That's the devil. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come, and you guys are glad you came. right? Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who'd been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. 
The rest of mankind who weren't killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the word of God. Wowzers! Okay, so you can see why it's kind of, right, a little bit scary. I, I was relieved in a way. I brought my sons to church, and my son, my 10-year-old boy, sat next to me on Sunday listening to Steve preach on the horsemen of the apocalypse. thought he did an outstanding job, and I was relieved that we weren't doing chapter 9, because I think that would have given him nightmares for years. Like, this is not an easy part of the Bible to read. And don't worry, no one's noticed. Um, and, but what I want to do then is just to look for a moment at, first of all, the trumpets as a whole, and then I'll talk about the weird and wonderful locust, scorpion, horse, lion things in chapter 9 and what I think's going on there. And I'll just say up front, we've got to hold some of this lightly, right? I could be wrong. I, you know, I, I try not to be, but if I am wrong, I probably wouldn't know anyway. Um, but that's what I, this is what I think is going on, and I think we can hold it lightly-ish and talk more if we need to. But the first thing, if we just go to the next, the next page, um, the first thing is to say the trumpets in the Bible represent a bunch of things, but they represent worship and war, particularly. And you all, if you think through the Old Testament stories when people blow trumpets, you'll find there's various things that they kind of, but a big thing that they represent, two big things are worship and war. So if you start in the cloud on the top left, right, in the Old Testament, there are two kinds of trumpets. There is the shofar, which is made of a ram's horn, and it's the, that's the, the shofar is the one that announces war. Oh. That's, it's that kind of, that's the noise. It's not like, you know what I mean? It's not as kind of, I don't know, bouncy as that. It's more like in, the, in um, Return of the King, when you suddenly hear the noise, and you turn around and you see all the, it's an elephant, and you see the elephants marching towards, none of you seen Return of the King. What is happening here? This is revenge for me hating Star Wars. I can feel it. Um, but the shofar is a war trumpet, and it says we are going to battle now. And, of course, that's what happens as they march around the city of Jericho. And they blow the trumpets and the walls fall down. It's a, it's a military sort of summons in that sense. And trumpets found in that, they function a bit like an air raid siren would for us. Like, get ready for battle. Yeah? Or something like that. And so that's the, that's the, the ram's horn. But there's also the silver trumpets in Numbers chapter 10. And the silver trumpets are trumpets which are more like what you and I imagine. Like a sort of hammered metal thing. And those trumpets are there to summon the people of Israel to worship and to sacrifice and to feast. And so if you think about the Day of Atonement, the Feast of, the Feast of Trumpets was on the first day of the seventh month and gets ready for the Day of Atonement. So trumpets symbolize either worship or war, and those two things are often what's going on when you see a trumpet in the Bible. Not always, but usually. So the trumpet sequence we're reading, we've just read, is building up in a sort of battle sequence, but it's also getting us ready for a moment of worship. And the battle sequence is chapters 8 and 9, as we've just read, and the worship sequence we'll see on Sunday, actually, in chapter 11. If you want to be more alliterative about it, you could do a whole biblical theology of trumpets saying that they evoke Jericho, Jubilee, Judgment, Jerusalem, Justice, Joy, and Jesus. And then you could do a sermon series out of that, but we're not going to do that. But I think they, as in it's a richer symbol than just two, but worship and war is a good start. And that's mainly what's happening in Revelation 8 and 9. It's like a military getting ready for, the, effectively, the judgment of God is coming to parts of the earth and parts of humanity for, as you saw at the very end of the text, 
not repenting of all sorts of things that they have done. And that's something that echoes what we saw in the seals on Sunday. But we need to go a little bit further into that because the seals and the trumpets are deliberately structured in sevens to make the point that judgment is escalating in the story of the book. Okay, So the, if, you look, if we've got the next page, and I know this is small, but you know, work with any... I think you might have this one on the back of your, on, on your notes um, as well. What we have on this, what this page is trying to do is to say, look, you, there, are, there is seven trumpets and seven seals and seven days of the week and seven kinds of plague being dis- described in sequence in these chapters. So it's not random. It's not like, oh, and then they blew a trumpet and some awful thing happened and then another trumpet and then another awful thing happened. But the, what John is doing and what John is seeing is walking us through a sequence of deliberately structured judgment that is supposed to remind us of two different parts of the Bible. The creation of the world in seven days. Doesn't matter how you regard those days, by the way, but in the seven, they are clearly in seven days in Genesis, aren't they? And, and then the plagues upon Egypt. And that both the days of creation and the plagues, the creation of the world and the judgment of the world, are being summed up in what is happening in John's vision of the trumpets. And each one corresponds to the seal. So if you, let's take the first one and hopefully you'll see what I mean, right? So the first day of judgment is upon the, the, in the, the first trumpet is upon the earth, right? Hail, fire, and blood destroy a third of the earth. Well, in, if you go down to the seals, you'll see that the seals sometimes, the seals strike a quarter of the earth, whereas the trumpets strike a third of the earth. And by the time we get to the bowls, they're destroying all of it. So what it's showing us is that judgment is escalating. Right? That's one of the things to pick up from the sequence. But the trumpets, they, attack, they strike the earth, then the sea, then the rivers, then the heavens. And you might at this point go, no, the first one gets the earth, then there's the sea, then there's the rivers, then there's the sun and the moon and the stars. If you know Genesis 1, you're going, oh, I know that sequence because that's what happens in Genesis, right? You, you get, God created the heavens and the earth, and then, of course, separates the seas, and then he gets the, separates the land into different sections, so the, effectively the distinction between water and land exists, and then you have the sun, moon, and the stars. You think, oh, okay, so this is a poetic, symbolic way of describing fullness of judgment upon all of the different things that the world is, and... That, obviously, within the context of reading symbols. So the first four, earth, sea, rivers, and heavens, correspond to the four horsemen that Steve was talking about on Sunday, which correspond to the first four creation days. And they do that by using imagery from the Exodus. And that, actually, when you stop and think about it, immediately you go, if you were around last year when we did the Exodus, you think, yeah, lots of the imagery in Revelation is... The water's turning to blood, there's locusts, there's boils, there's darkness in the middle of the day. It's full of that sort of thing, right? And actually, you, you stand back from it and you go, oh, right, so what the writer, what John is doing is he's showing us that creation, the whole of the seven days of creation are being echoed in the judgment God is bringing in Exodus-like language upon the whole of the earth as a result of sin. Now, you might, or might, not, you might be going, man, I don't know. Okay, that's fine. It's fire hydrant drinking time, I know, because some of us are going, I've never even really thought about these chapters. But, so this is what probably, this is how I would map it out. So the first four, first four trumpets, first four seals, first four days, and the plagues. The problem is that then you get days five and six, and days five and six in, involve these very bizarre creatures at war with each other. 
You have locust scorpions on one side and horse lions on the other side, and they're having a big battle, and lots of people are dying. And that's for five months. Okay? And so we're going to go, oh, I'll just give up at this point. I don't know what's going on there. We'll come to that on the next page. But for now, just suspend judgment in that. And then, if you like, on the seventh trumpet, which doesn't come until chapter 11, finally the temple is opened and worship for the fact that the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of Jesus. Worship rises from the, from the throne of God and from the, the dead saints, which then take us into this Sunday and beyond. So that is, again, is that there's a lot in that page, right? And you could spend time, what is, okay, that, and that's partly why we printed it out, so that you can just take some time to think it through. But, and then there's a few notes at the bottom, which you, you can, you know, you know, take your time to think through. The main point at the bottom, I'm saying, is actually what judgment typically does in Revelation, is it reveals what's already true. The judgment, the, the Nile, do you think back to the Exodus? The Nile is a river of blood, from the moment the Egyptians start throwing their baby boys into it, right? It gets revealed as a river of blood when Moses says, now it's going to become blood. And that's often true in Scripture, that effectively judgment is an unveiling, a disclosure of what is and has happened to that thing in rebellion against God. And that that's an important thing to bear in mind as you read the symbols of Revelation, that that's often what's happening in the backstory for John, as he's describing. It's like an exposure, an unveiling, a dis, you know, a disclosing, unmasking, right, of the realities at work in the world. So that's a sort of structural snapshot. And but I did say I was going to look at the weird creatures, and then we'll pause, okay? And we can we can talk and again in pause in a second. But then one more page just to consider. Scripture's strangest chapter, okay. And this is the battle between the locust scorpions and the horse lions, which is just bizarre, okay? It's not, not easy, no matter how many biblical symbols you've read. And I think, you, so in the first half of this chapter, you are introduced to locust scorpions that sting people and don't kill them. And this is where the Apache helicopter comment, which I know was kind of tongue-in-cheek from the person who sent it, but that's where that comes. People think, wow, man, in battle, flying locust scorpions, are these real things? I think by this point, I'd say, well, Depends what you mean by real. Literal, no. Real as in referring to a genuine thing, yes, but not literal at all. I don't think that's how you're supposed to read the imagery of Revelation. But these grotesque creatures, locust scorpions, emerge from the depths and they are described in a vile, a wasp is a a sort of, it's an Arabic and Hebrew form of poem that basically, in the Song of Songs, it says, oh, how lovely you are. Your head is like this, your eyes are like that, your chest is like this, your Breasts are like clumps of dates. Your feet are like whatever, right? You know that sort of poetry? That's called a, like sometimes people call that a wasp. These, these creatures are described like that, with seven features, like Jesus is described with seven features. Head, hair, legs, feet, all that stuff. Well, they do the same with these weird creatures. Head, face, hair, teeth, breastplates, wings, and tails. They're not quite as attractive as the woman in the Song of Songs, I suspect. Um, and the, <laughs> I like the fact that Steve was able to laugh at that. Now, I, don't know, I think some would say that the, the, the woman in the Song of Songs, if you take her appearance, literally, you have a very, very strange-looking woman as well. Like, <laughs> your, your hair is like a flock of goats. Like, nah, you know, very, very odd, so let's not go there either. Your breasts are like you know, fawns of a gazelle, and you think, no, I really hope they're not, and all those sorts of things. So in some ways, that helps us read this, doesn't it? Because you know when you read Song of Songs, that's not a literal picture of a woman. It's poetic imagery, and the same's happening here. The stings of these scorpions harm people, but they don't kill them. 
And scorpions may, as they do in the Old Testament, may represent the words of rebellious Israel. They do in Ezekiel. And they hurt people for five months. Now, some people don't... Bear with me here. This is not a, this is, we're not going to go into astrology. But a lot of people in the ancient world, they track the constellations. And they knew what they meant. And actually, there's a decent chance that the lion, the virgin, the book, the scorpion, and the archer are all actually evoked in this section of scripture that there's supposed that people in the ancient world who live by the signs of the stars much more than we do because they it's very familiar reference point for the ancient near east probably they would understand that imagery much more than we would and it would become is a bigger part of their understanding of the cosmos like we would now refer to neptune and pluto and you guys would know what they were well in the ancient world they wouldn't know what neptune and pluto were but they would know the zodiac and it may be that that's some of the imageries here as well but I think the way of understanding it is in the second half of this, on the, on the bottom left, right? This is not the only place in the New Testament where we find an association between the fall of Satan to the earth, which is happening in this chapter, authority, and the stings of scorpions, which are not going to hurt believers. Right? That exact com- configuration of imagery also occurs in the ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Right? The same things come together. The 72 come back and say, even the demons submitted to us. And Jesus said, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And believe you you me, you're going to be okay. Scorpions are not even going to have the power to sting you because you've been given authority because of the fall of Satan from heaven. And so in in these, Revelation 9 and Luke 10 are talking about the same thing in my view. They're describing the consequences of the victory of Christ for the casting down of the devil from heaven the authority of believers, and the fact that although demons will attack and try and strike the church through a combination of false teaching, accusation, and martyrdom, the church will be protected from being killed. That's what I think is happening in the first half of Revelation 9. So people will handle this differently. Are the low-corpians, sorry, but you know, let's make up a word. Are the low-corpians simply opponents of the gospel? Like, would Saul, the, the Pharisee, before he converted... Is Saul an example of a locust scorpion in real life? As in somebody who's effectively being used by Satan to attack the church and destroy her witness by accusing her of things, throwing them in jail and killing them. I can't prove that, right? I'm not, I'm not, I don't think, and by the way, I don't think John is right. And he goes, you know that guy Saul? I know he's been dead for a few years. I know he was a really good guy in the end, but at one, in his day, he was a right old locust scorpion. I'm not saying John is making it that point, but I wonder if that's, a, that's actually a much better picture of what's going on than an Apache helicopter, in my view. I hope you can see why, even if you disagree, which is absolutely fine. As I say, I'm, I hold these lightly. Greg Beale, a, a great commentator on Revelation. Demons are commissioned to torment hardened unbelievers. And Peter Lightheart, another commentator I found helpful, he says, that basically what Revelation, 9, Revelation 8 to 11 describes in his, an apocalyptic poetry, what Acts describes in historical prose. That actually this bit of Revelation corresponds to the story of the growth and yet the persecution of the church. And I... I know it sounds like a stretch, right? It's a weird passage no matter how you read it, but I think the imagery, particularly the imagery of snakes and scorpions and the falling of Satan from heaven and authority bound up together make that a a better reading than the others I've seen. We will discuss in a moment, okay? That's the first half of the chapter. On the second half of the chapter, we then get 200 million horses with lion heads. And we thought we were out of the woods, but we're not. And they arrive and they kill a third of mankind. 
And that's pretty odd too. By the way, spare a thought for Helen. She is signing this whole thing. Um, <laughs> Helen's pretty amazing, I think you'll agree. Okay? Now, the challenge you have with the horse lions is that the, although the locust scorpions are obviously demonic, I think, the horse lions, the question for me is, are they, are they goodies or baddies? Um, are they angels or demons? Because they're actually called angels, aren't they, in the passage? You may, have, we, you may have clocked that as we read and thought, wow, they're killing a third of mankind, but the writer calls them angels. And so, again, to quote these two theologians I just mentioned, Greg Beale would say they're, they're wicked angels or demons, because, and he says because they're hybrid creatures, and that's usually a bad sign. But they're also described as angels, not as demons. They're released by an angel, not by Satan. They are numbered, and in Revelation, I think, in every other case where a force is numbered with, an, with a, like myriads of, I heard their number, that indicates that God is sort of marking it off as sacred space in some way, other than the one when he says it's man's number. That's the, we'll come to that as well, the 66. But then when a troop, when a force is numbered, it's usually a sign this is the holy people of God. And that's true in the Old Testament as well. Israel is always counted in that sense. They wear gems on their breastplate like the priests. And they kill people in order to prevent them from worshipping idols. So I think the horse lions are actually goodies, not baddies. Again, can't prove it. If they are angelic cavalry coming from the east to fight locust scorpions, effectively, who already occupy the land, then when these guys reappear at the Euphrates in the east, it would indicate that the land is about to be conquered by the forces of God rather than another wave of disaster. And there is one other mention of the Euphrates in the book of Revelation, and it comes at the start of the Battle of Armageddon, which you may want to ask about in a a few minutes, um, in chapter 16. And I think, therefore, what we have in very simple terms is a battle between angels and demons, angels protecting the church and striking down idolatry, demons trying to attack and persecute and destroy the church and not being able to because the people of God are sealed. In rough outline, that's what I think is happening. Now... There's a lot there to think about, okay? So again, you turn to the person next to you or in twos and threes and just go, what the heck did you make of that, okay? <laughs> like, didn't understand it, like, no, again, knew it all, I've got it on, my, on speed dial, whatever it might be, okay? <laughs> Take a couple of minutes just to think that one through. What questions might you have? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a risk here and uh, make the assumption that there is some stuff in there that will be confusing. Um, <laughs> And, and so I wanna, what we normally do is we do the sort of clapometer and then the Q&A at the end, but I, I, I don't want people to get stuck on what we've just done and not be able to ask anything about it straight away. So if you, have a, if you have a question about something, about either the structure of the whole book that we did on the first page or about chapters 8 and 9 that you think would be helpful, just throw it out now. We've got a roving mic over there. Faria is here and Joe's over there. Yeah, okay, great. So we've got a, probably at least a couple of questions. That'd be good. Okay. So my question is about um, the horse lions um, and that they killed a third of mankind. Mm. Do we, is that the third of mankind part? Is that symbolic? Do we think, and I'm thinking about scriptures that say we wrestle not against flesh and blood, yeah. but again, like, is, that, uh, is that people or what, how would you interpret that? I think it's, sim- I think the third is symbolic um, I, because I think the way that the book builds is to go from a quarter under the seals to a third under the trumpets, and then actually by the time the bowls come out, and spare a thought for Hillary because she's going to preach on the bowls on a Sunday, which is a tough passage, um, every, it's everybody. And so I think the quarter to the third to the whole is a way of indicating escalating judgment. I don't think it means that 
there was a day in human history when angels came out and a third of the people were suddenly dead. And I think, again, if you bear in mind, the, the backdrop of the Exodus story here is really important, that this is, if I like, angelic judgment coming and striking down the enemies of God. I think, and that's, that's what I think it's, refer, it's referring to that, angelic judgment on the enemies of God. But I don't think that we're supposed to then say one in three in every nation is killed or anything like that. I think it's a way of symbolically describing escalating judgment would be my best guess on that. For the, because of the, the narrative shape of the book as a whole. Joe? Um, yeah, just kind of looking at the, the, well, the hippo lions, as you've called them up there. Yes. Um, it, you do refer to them as wicked angels or demons, um, but then you mentioned that they were released by an angel, yeah. not Satan. Yeah. Wasn't Satan an angel first? Yes. I know he's a fallen angel, but does that yeah. not still make him an angel? Um, that's a, no, that's a good point. Um, I, I think that in the language of Revelation, the word... You know, it's, um, I know I didn't say it earlier. I'm going to say it on Sunday. I was preaching it in this room a few hours ago, so that's for the video. But I, there is, for instance, there's an angel in Revelation 10 that I think refers to the Lord Jesus. I think he's described in Jesus-like imagery. The, the Greek word angelos just means messenger, and we've obviously taken their Greek word and turned it into an English word, angel. But it, as, when it means messenger, it's really somebody who comes as a herald of God to give people a message. And so although I think there is a sense in which... Actually, I mean, I think the, even the idea of Satan as a fallen angel is still actually very difficult to established biblically and I think it's the best guess we have given that he was in the heavenly court accusing people but it, I don't think there's a text that actually says Satan is an angel because that word would generally be reserved for someone who is a messenger of God even though I think he is a spiritual being and in that sense he is kind of like an angel I know why people say that but I don't think that word I might be wrong here but I can't think of a text where the, where the word angelos would be used of the devil because I think that word is used in a more positive sense generally um, and I think what we generally mean by angel is spiritual being. Fair enough. And in that sense, demons are bad angels. But I actually think there's a big difference between the words behind demon and the word behind angel, I think. Um, again, hold it lightly. Could be wrong. Just one, one or two more, yeah? We've got one there, and then we've got one from the senior pastor, which should be fun. <laughs> yeah, my question is, um, we, talk, we talk of demons with... Um, First of all, the lotus, etc. Those are those are, um, I would say, uh, put there to tor torment yeah. the humans. God used them as a tool to torment us in, the, in, in those days, at the end days. Secondly, the demons um, and the, I mean, the horses with the lion heads, etc. They are they metaphorical or actual? Um, animals that come yeah. out to kill humans. No, I think they're, I think them. I think both sides are heavily symbolic. I think, right? So I don't think these guys, the locust scorpions, are, are symbolic, and the horse lions are literal. I think they are both symbolic descriptions of spirit. Like actually, much of the Book of Revelation is symbolic descriptions of spiritual realities to help us see how grotesque and evil demons are, and actually how powerful. Imagine two hundred million angelic cavalry charging over the hill to effectively strike down, admittedly strike down the enemies of God, but protect the people of God, you'd say, wow, I'd like to have them on my side. I think it's like what happened when Elisha 
is outside the city, and he goes, oh, and he says of his servant, oh, we're going to die. And Elisha says, oh, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And he suddenly sees horses and chariots surrounding, angelic cavalry surrounding the city and thinking, we're going to be fine here. And I think it's that sort of thing that's going on, but in a sort of spiritual unveiling way. The reality is angels, unless they take physical flesh form, as they often do in the Bible, but in their like, natural state, an angel's invisible. So you have to picture them as something. And I think in the way, this is just a way of picturing the angelic, powerful reality as well as the demonic, grotesque, evil reality to try and help us see the extremes, um, which I think is often what Revelation is trying to wake us up. It's trying to throw cold water in our face and say, don't mess around with this stuff, right? Idolatry looks like, it. Oh, no, 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 it's going to meet these guys are going to kill you. Or false teaching looks like it's, oh, no, it's just a weird idea. No, it's not. It's like demons coming in like scorpions to try and strike you dead and you need to stamp on their heads. I think that's what... And Jesus does the same. So I think that's what it's trying to capture for us. Steve. Could you make a comment just on the judgment of God? Hmm. Um, I don't think it's something that you hear preached very often. You, much, you would hear the love of God, the hmm. grace of God, the acceptance of God, you know. Hmm. But just, just the theme of judgment. Yeah. Is that okay? Can yeah. you help me on I th- that? Well, I think, in my, I think in many ways... One of the big themes of Revelation is it's a book of judgment and blessing, isn't it? It's a book in which it pulls no punches both on the glorious blessing and future of the people of God and on the judgment of people who oppose God. And I think apocalyptic language particularly does. It, it, it draws much sharper contrasts than many of us are comfortable with. Because most of us go, well, I, I know, you know, the, the classic one, I was at a wedding three days ago, a good friend of mine from university, he's like, just one of the nicest guys. And he's wife who I've got to know recently, just one of the nicest people. And in the end, I go, well, there's a very broad spectrum here from, you know, and me and them, and, you know, we're very, very new. And, a, and that's, a lot of the time, that's the world you live in, isn't it? And then you read a, apocalyptic, and apocalyptic forces a much starker divide than that. And Jesus does too, right? Then at the end, there's going to be, there's wheat and weeds. There's going to be a net, and the fish are going to get sorted, and some of them are going to go that way, and some of them are going that way. There's sheep, and there's goats, and and this, in a way, this kind of literature is trying to heighten the contrast so we can see it. So it doesn't become a blur and a mushy... I think this is one of the problems the Corinthians had. You know, if you read the Corinthian, they're like, they just didn't really... Oh, well, we're all kind of the same as the world. And it's like, texts like this, they're not the whole picture, because there's another massive sense in which you go, we've got a lot to learn from everybody who's not a believer, right? But in a sense, you have to see the world as being the blessed and the judged, and you need texts like this to waken you up and go, wow, this is not a game. This is serious stuff. And the judgment of God will fall. It's just a question of when on us all, actually. And I'm either going to, you know, as Steve was saying on Sunday, who can stand? Well, the people who can stand are the people who are hidden by the blood of the Lamb. And if you're not, you're in big trouble. And you need texts like this to remind you of that. So there's an urgency to it, I think. Um, Miracle is raising his hand higher than I've ever seen it raised, so I think we should give a special dispensation for just one more question, if that's all right. And then, because then what I want to do is broaden it out to there's lots of other stuff in Revelation, which I think we might want to get to. So, uh, just a quick one. I am um, wondering what is the relevance of this today? Yes, um, I, I did hear you say that that the judgment of God will fall. So we're looking at something in the future, as it were. In the present, yeah. is any of this relevant? Yes. Is there All any of judgment going on? Uh, I mean, it's just, is it just something that has to do with something that might happen in eight, 1,000 years to come? 
Yeah. Or is it relevant today? No, in many ways, I actually think the historical period that's most in view in the book of Revelation as a whole is actually the period of the early church. That's the most, that's like uppermost, is actually the, the generations up until the fall of Jerusalem, I, in my reading of Revelation. And, but I think that that stands as a, effectively, that is symbolically what happens in every generation. So I think the way you read, for me, the way you read Revelation as a whole is to say, okay, firstly, what realities did this mean to them? But then how does that play out in my generation? Because it always does. So for instance, the, if you, do we have people out in the world who are trying to kill Christians? Yes. Do we have people in the world who are trying to say, I'm not going to kill Christians. I'm just going to poison the church with doctrine that's going to gradually erode the witness of the church. Of course we do. Do we have, on the other hand, do we have um, angelic forces who are saying, we are going to contend against the forces of idolatry in the, in the modern world, and at times we're going to strike down idolaters, which is exactly what happens in the book of Acts. King Herod, oh, and they all say, it's a god. And he goes, yeah, do you know what, I am a god. And he gets struck down straight away, Ananias and Sapphira. And that kind of thing happens all the time in our world as well. And in a way, I think that both of these realities are at, at work in every generation. And it is the application in that sense is to say, don't mess around with false teaching or idolatry or immorality or, theft or any of these other things that these people are struck down for. And bear in mind that there is a spiritual war taking place in your world right now. And you mustn't monkey around with these things. And so I think if I had to apply it in, in a couple of sentences, I'd do it like that. I don't think that the... The finality of judgment, as, you're rightly, as you rightly say, is obviously not now. The sense of, you know, God comes back and wipes out everybody who is opposed to him. I don't think that's happening. You know, sometimes people say, oh, that's, that earthquake happened in that country because of this history. I, I don't tend to go in for that because I think Jesus warned about people doing that. Saying, you're gonna re- if you don't repent, you'll perish as well. But I think that the principle of that, the sort of the spiritual battle at work in every generation is always there in, in my reading. The thing is, it's a way of approaching the whole book. And to be honest, there will be, of course, there are differences amongst godly Christians who would say, I think this is more weighted towards the end than that. I don't personally read it as much that way. I think this is first century is in main focus, but these, that reveals the spiritual dynamics and powers at work in every generation. And we'll see the same when we get to the beast, if we do. I think exactly the same is happening there, in my reading, but that it will be different from others. Okay. Can I move to a clapometer? And so this is now, again, everybody participation. Okay, what do you think for a moment? I have suggested five things that I think you guys might want to talk about and consider which are not related to chapters 8 and 9. So we're going to leave chapters 8 and 9 now. Okay? And you can look in vain on your sheet for the clapometer. It is not there. This is live. We're going to see what happens. Okay? But I had a guess that there might be up to five things you might think, these are, the, for me, the big five, but I might have missed one. Probably have, right? Would you like to talk about... I'll tell you what they all are, then you can clap. Otherwise, we'll get the Andy Floyd thing. Where do you notice he he loaded it so that his site got to clap last, which everyone who's ever done kids' work knows the last one is always the loudest one. So I don't want to do it that way, so I'm going to circle back. I'll give you all five, okay? Do you want to talk about the beasts? Do you want to talk about the mark of the beast, the 666, the number? Do you want to talk about Armageddon? Do you want to talk about the harlots? Or do you want to talk about the millennium? Right, I had that all of that, all of the, right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to rank them on the clapometer, okay? Wait, wait, uh, you can't just clap like that, Ian. Goodness, haven't you been listening? Ian Moore has been to more of these seminars than anyone in this church, and he's using the clapometer at random. What is this, Ian? Good grief. So, yeah, you, you want all five, Ian. Um, so, who would like to hear about the beasts? 
Clap. Very few, okay? Who would like to hear about 666? Oh. Armageddon. Okay. The Harlots. What? <laughs> I don't know what to read into the fact that Don was cheering about the word harlot being said in church there. And, and the Millennium. Okay. So it sounds like we're going 666 and the Millennium are the two loudest ones, but with a couple of loud whoops for one or two others, okay? So let me, uh, I will do my best, okay? Let me, um, let me go, can we go two pages? There's a, one of the pages has got a barcode in the top right-hand corner, Tarek. Can we go there? I'm, the barcode is facetious, don't worry. I'm not going to sit. Right, okay. That barcode is is a joke, okay? Just so that you don't think the next time you go to the shop, that's what's going on. It's, but of course, there are people who do teach that. So I'm, that's why I'm using it as a, just a, I had to put something visual on the slide, otherwise it's just text, okay? Um, largely ignore the left-hand side of the page, okay? Because that's, you, that's if we talked about the beasts, we would go there. Um, but for now, we, we're gonna, I'm going to preach on that in two weeks' time, so we will cover that anyway. But the image mark a number of the beasts, okay? So what happened, if you, if you know the story of Revelation, this is Revelation 13, okay? But it's one of those bits of the Bible that is really famous even to people who've never read the book of Revelation. It's just, it seems to be one of those things that's got into the water cycle and captured the imagination. Um, so what happens in Revelation 13 is you, we are introduced to two beasts. There is a beast out of the sea and a beast out of the land. And jumping over a lot of exegetical work, I think the beast out of the sea is the Roman Empire and the beast out of the land is it basically is Roman Jerusalem, in my reading of things, allying together to attack the church. That's what I think is happening. But if you'd asked about the beast, we would have tried to make that case. But for now, you just have to start somewhere. So I think you have Roman Jerusalem being pictured in these grotesque symbolic realities. Well, what happens is that the land beast causes people to make and then worship an image of the sea beast. And the mark of the beast is put onto the right hand or the forehead of everybody who, is, who worships it. And that imagery of having something put on your right, right hand on your forehead is something that happens in the Old Testament of the, the, the priesthood and the law. So people are told, actually, you need to write the law on your hand and on your forehead. You know, you know, the Pharisees used to have the Torah on their arms, right? So you, see, you put it on your arm and you put it on your forehead. As it was God's way of saying, this has got to be so much a part of you that you know and love the law that it's everywhere you go. And some of us, if you traveled in the Holy Land, you'll have seen, you just see it in people's homes. They just have the Torah above their door or they have a little post next to their doorpost. It's quite common. And so that image, it's like the beast has taken that scripture, symbolically speaking, but the beast has taken that scripture and done it with his own mark. So instead of having the law of God on people, they're going to be totally characterized so that their whole life is saturated with demonic worship or you know, deferring to the gods of empire or whatever it may be. And then it says no one can buy or sell without it. And so the symbol is deliberately drawing from, the, from Deuteronomy and saying, well, Israel was supposed to have the law all over them, but now actually they've just got the tools of pagan empire all over them. I think that's the, that's the imagery that the mark of the beast is about. Um, and there's a combination of worship and buying and selling here, which comes across a lot in the Gospels. So when the temple is actually, the, some might say, some would even say, the image of the beast specifically happens in the temple because that's actually what eventually the Romans do. That's what the Syrians did at 150 years before Christ is they, they turned up and said, yeah, we will put an, effectively an image into the most holy place and you'll worship that. 
and we'll desecrate it. And the Romans did that, and they said, yeah, we'll put up an image in the temple. And the fact that Jesus says, yeah, worshipping worshiping false gods and buying and selling in the temple, Jesus comes in and cleanses, the, cleanses them both. And he says, you buying and selling in the temple is actually a kind of false worship, and so I'm going to trash the place. And it may be that Revelation 13 is saying the mark of the beast is actually bound up with idolatrous worship even in Jerusalem. At least that's how it would have been understood in, the, in its original context, in my view. But then we get to the thing, his number is 666. And I'm just going to come out and say, I th- I'm pretty sure that, the, that this refers to Nero. I'll try and make a case as to why. That you, partly so you don't have to worry about whether or not it's, as we said in week one, Trump or Steve or whoever else you might think it is. Um, <laughs> Of course, actually, we have got Trump and Steve in the same city at the moment. Maybe it's coming to pass. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that until I just said it. But, um, but I think the re- I, I want to. I may not be able to convince you it's Nero, but this is why I think this is the Emperor Nero. So, if you don't know who we're talking about here, Emperor Nero, fifty-four to sixty-eight A.D., institutes the first period of savage empire-wide persecution. It's not. Uh, sorry. Not empire-wide, imperial persecution of the church. Not empire-wide at all. It's quite narrow, into, particularly into Rome. But he persecutes the church. He, Tacitus tells us that he um, sticks, impales Christians and sets them on fire and uses them to light the city on the way in. As you approach Rome down one of those wide Roman roads, you would have Christians on fire lighting up the way in. They were covered in animal skins and torn to pieces in the auditorium and so on. So very, very you know, very aggressive attack of the church, under whom both Peter and Paul were killed, right? So it's a very significant moment for the church. It's not for us, because, well, it might be, but most of us probably don't know that much about it, but of course, in their day, this was a huge issue. This was the dominant, this was, you know, ISIS and Mao and Stalin and Hitler all rolled into one for them. This was a very, very pressing political reality for them. And so I think that's, the, that's who Nero is. I think there are good reasons to say that Nero is who this number would have been understood to mean. Okay, so they, they, some of you will know that they played a game called Gematria in the ancient world, which was a game based on the fact that in many languages, although not in English, so we use Arabic numerals and Roman letters. But imagine if we use Roman numerals as well as Roman letters, right? So that shape, right, this would be a V and a 5. And that shape would be a one and an I. And in fact, we do have a couple like that, don't we? Because a zero is an O and all that stuff. But in the ancient world, all letters had, no, not all letters had numerical values, but numbers all had letters associated with them. And so there was a, it's quite common actually, because effectively a number and a word become the same thing in that sort of culture. You see, if you imagine in Roman numerals, you, you spelt your name and wrote your birthday in Roman numerals, you could turn it into a word. People do it with number plates in our culture, don't they? They turn their numbers into letters and make it like their name. Well, that's what happened in the ancient world a lot. And if you add up the letters of Nero Kaiser, which is Nero and Kaiser, which is obviously how he would have been known as Nero Caesar in Latin, without vowels, then it adds up to 666. Now, that on its own, you might think, well, yeah, somebody's just shoehorned that in. But I think there's a bit of a giveaway. If you look in your, some of you have got a good Bible with you now that has a few footnotes in it. And I bet that if, you look to, if you've got a Bible that has, I know some don't have footnotes, but if you have a Bible with footnotes, I bet that a bunch of you here have got a Bible that will say, with a little footnote, and then at the bottom it'll say, some ancient manuscripts say 616. Um, in fact, if anybody gets one, then first to shout bingo, they'll get some sort of, well, prize of bragging rights, I suppose. But anybody got one? Anybody got that? 
You have, Joe. Well done, Joe, just for having a Bible of anointing, I'm sure. I don't even ask, right? So, but that would be, in a lot of Bibles, also, you're, you, if you haven't brought your Bible with you, it may well say that when you look at it later. Because there, there is a, the, some ancient manuscripts, effectively, it would seem that what happened is the, the name, the game of gematria, the mathematical word game, had, in some manuscripts, they had a number missing, and they also therefore made the overall number smaller. So if you sell... If you spell Neron Kaiser without the N at the end, which is effectively just Nero Caesar instead of Neron, which is the part that's to do with the grammar of Greek. But if you were to do it without the, the N at the end, it would add up to 616, not 666. So that it, would look, it looks like a very easy way that that mistake could have entered some of the early manuscripts is because somebody said, oh, no, it's Nero Caesar. And so we'll just drop the N. But then in that case, 666 must be wrong. The math doesn't work, so they'd have changed it to 616. That's a pretty obscure argument, but I hope you can see the logic behind it. And that's why a lot of people say, well, that, that would be a compelling reason for it to be Nero. But I think there's a bunch of other reasons why. You, you, because otherwise, you just say, why not just say it's Nero then? But I think there are a number of other reasons. Uh, it's quoting George Caird for a moment. A few different reasons why that may well have happened. One, number, the six is the number that falls one short of seven, right? So six symbolizes man's number. Um, 777 is fullness, 666 is falling short. Six is man's number, not just negatively, because humans get created on the sixth day, right? It's a human day. But it's a way of saying this is, of course, the, the, the image of people worshipping man rather than people worshipping God. So to make the play on words that Nero Caesar is 666 is a way of saying, can you see that Nero Caesar is the embodiment of what people do when they worship humans instead of God? Right? It's a clever way of making that point if you speak Greek and count in Latin. I know, I know that's a stretch, because we don't. But if you did, it's actually pretty... It's a barn buster of a, of a joke that would help you see something. Do you know what I mean? It's like a coded thing that you guys would... To be honest, it is like what happens when someone puts a, a sort of massive bouffant haircut and, on an American. They just go... It's a way of making a joke that we understand about the president. And they're doing that about the, the emperor, do you see? Second reason why they might have done 66 is this is two-thirds of a thousand. So back, this is back now a little numerical point back to actually, incidentally, to Faria's question about the third. And actually, if you divide the world into a third who gets struck down and two-thirds who don't, you'd say, well, some of the people are being killed, but actually all of the others are caught up in idolatrous worship of Caesar because 666 is a two-thirds number. It's also a triangular number, if you, if you know what that is, but that's where... Uh, it's like a square number, but effectively, instead of saying 36 times 36, you add up all the numbers that go from 36 downwards. Um, it's a little bit like a factorial number. Um, and so it's a triangular number in contrast to the square numbers that you find in the, book of Re- the end of Revelation where the city of God is described. So maybe it's a joke about that. Um, and also, I think there's another reason, which is that the only other place that 666 appears in the Bible is when it describes the court of Solomon and the amount of stuff that he was buying, right? If you read 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9, you'll find he had, 600, I think it's 666 talents of gold. And that's just weird. If you've ever read through Kings and gone, 666, I've seen that number before. I wonder what that's doing there. And I wonder if, I don't know, there's just an allusion to the fact that there is an, actually an Israelite king who has also taken himself to the position that only God should have and started to hoard wealth, weapons, and women, guys, guns, and girls, whatever you want to call it, and said, I'm going to be the all-powerful one around here, which is at the very moment when Israel started falling apart. I don't know. 
I think, in other words, I think there are a few reasons why Nero as 666 is a very clever mathematical-based word game joke about in a coded way of describing the emperor that everybody then would have got, but that today we don't because we don't use that game and we may not even know who Nero is that clearly. Um, but I think that's how it would have been taken. And therefore, I'm anticipating Miracle's kind of question, which I think should be all of our question, really. What's the relevance of that today? That does not for a moment mean that powers like that don't come back at all. Powers like Nero, who centralize power to themselves and say, we're going to impose pagan worship. We're going to force people to do things that violate their conscience. We're going to make people line up with what the state says about everything, and we're going to kill you if you don't line up with us. That happens all the time. That's happening in dozens of countries around the world, and in varying, in some degrees, it's happening in ours. Just not to the, it's not, they're not killing people, but do you know what I mean? Some of that stuff. So we've got to have eyes to see that that's not just their day, but in this book, I think that's the reality it would have been understood to refer to. Okay, turn to the person next to you and say, what a lot of cobblers, or totally convinced, or who is Nero again, or, okay, any thoughts on that as you just turn and reflect? If that has prompted all sorts of questions and thoughts, good, we, will, we can come back to a few of them in a few minutes. If I may, I will take the other big clapometer vote, at least as I heard it, and I hope I didn't get it wrong. Um, but the other big clapometer vote was for the millennium. So I thought, let's spend, yes. Um, so I just want to, let's spend a few minutes there. Do you have the final one with the clouds? He's coming on the clouds. And there we have, okay. Um, this, this is a summary. Um, but what I'm going to do with the millennium is I'm going I'm to point some of you to one of the best resources like this I've ever seen. Okay? Some of you are going to go, goodness, I would never want to spend an evening doing that. But some of you are going to say, two hours learning about the millennium from four of the smartest theologians on the, in the, on the planet, that's exactly what I'd like to do with an evening. And if that is, can I point you first to a superb video that John Piper hosted a discussion on this called An Evening of Eschatology. It's on YouTube, it's free. But what he did, which I think was really smart, was he got a representative from each of the three views and him to sit down and discuss, and he basically found the smartest theologian he could to represent each of the three positions, and they all get along really well, and I know a couple of them, they're just, you know, they're really good, they're good, godly people who represent their views really well, and debate really well, and pretty robustly, um, but my favorite line in it is when one of, the, one of the guys who's describing their position says, to be honest, you know, I could be wrong, I, I don't really mind changing my theology in midair, which I just thought was a really fantastic line, and is a good way of thinking about the millennium, like, okay, I might have to change my theology in midair at the last minute, and I'll find, oh, okay, I was wrong, but I care about other things now, um, and that's fine, but it is such a helpful, detailed treatment of the best reasons to hold each of those three views. Some of you, however, are saying, don't... I don't, I'm afraid. Um, that is an excellent question, and one I should have anticipated, and I didn't, so sorry. Um, I, I, the version I saw did not, but that doesn't mean there isn't one. I just, it means I haven't seen it. Um, so, but some of you are going, oh, I'm not there. Just, okay, map out for me what this means um, before we start diving into any of that stuff. Um, and so basically, the millennium, the millennium is a thousand-year reign of Jesus that is referred to, very, really only clearly referred to, in the book of Revelation chapter 20. So I'm just going to read the, a few verses from Revelation 20 so you can see where we're getting this. Um, and hopefully this will also spare 
Steve having to do a massive treatment of it in his message on this section later on because I think in some ways this is one of those questions it's difficult to do in a drive-by way. Uh, But Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who hadn't worshipped the beast or its image and hadn't received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now that's the, that's the text that people are discussing, right? And what they're asking is, what does this thousand-year period refer to? There's a thousand years... John says, and he says this, by the way, just after we've seen Jesus come riding on a white horse and just before John sees the judgment seat and then a new creation. And so people reading Revelation say, okay, so there's a thousand year period where the devil is thrown into a pit, chained and prevented from deceiving the nations. And the martyrs, particularly the beheaded martyrs, it says, are effectively exalted to heaven and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And the question that people are asking about that thousand years is, where is that? When is that? Where in history does it fit? And the church has, for most of our history, the church has come up with just three answers. In the last 200 years, people have come up with a fourth answer, which I think is wrong. I don't, and I think we as a, as a team would go, yeah, that's not certainly how we're going to approach not just Revelation, but biblical future thinking at all, which you may be, that's the left behind series kind of concept. We could talk about that in the questions if you like, but that, that's certainly not where I am. I think that's much more, and that's not represented in this discussion either that I mentioned. It's, I think that's further off the reservation, and no one had come up with it until 1830. But the other three views that I've got up here are have, Christians have debated for a long time. Premillennial people are people who say, well, the, it, what premillennium is in its pure form is to say that Jesus re- returns before pre the millennium. Jesus returns to the earth and then there is a thousand year reign of Christ with resurrected believers on the earth with Jesus. That's what, so a premillennialist would read this and this is the view that James Hamilton takes in the evening discussion. He says, yeah, I think what this means is that Jesus comes back to the earth, the believers are raised from the dead, but the world actually continues under the kingdom of Christ for a thousand years. Actually, unbelievers are still there. And at the end of that period, there is final judgment and then the new creation. That's what premillennialism is. Jesus returns pre the millennium. Postmillennialism is, as you might expect, the opposite, which is no. Jesus returns after the thousand year reign. All of this period, the sealing of the, 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 dra- the dragon's thrown into the pit and sealed, and the nations aren't deceived, and the you know, people in Christ are exalted and honored. That takes place during the church age, towards the end of the church age, and at the end of it, Jesus returns. That's what a postmillennialist would say. So ignore what the text in the clouds for a moment, okay? Because I'll come to that in a moment. But that's the post-millennialism is Jesus returns after the thousand years. Pre-millennialism is he returns before the thousand years and reigns with 
resurrected Christians for a thousand years. And then amillennialism is a, a, it's a, actually a form of post-mill, but amillennialism is saying, this, like all the numbers in Revelation, the thousand years is symbolic, and an amillennialist, and this is the view I would hold, but I'm not, I'm not like, you must at all, but it's just it's worth you knowing that that's where I am, um, is that the thousand years actually is a way of describing the church age as a whole, and that the throwing of the devil into the pit is what happened at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That's how someone like me would read it, and we'd say this is actually the binding of Satan, what Colossians 2 talks about, and says that Jesus effectively disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them and shamed them because Jesus was sovereign. And therefore, the not deceiving the nations doesn't mean everyone becomes a believer. It means Satan can't stop the Gentiles from coming to faith in the church age. And that's the view I would hold, but I don't, it's not like you have to or anything like that. And it's not like we can't agree on lots of other stuff in Revelation if you don't. And some of us will have a view on this that runs fairly, have got fairly deep roots in our Christian background. So I'm not trying to you know, sway you on any of these things in the space of a couple of minutes. But I think that discussion will give you a very good taster of the best reasons for each view. Now, what I've done in the clouds with the text here is to say, I think there is a way, in a sense in which all three of them have got something absolutely something right. right? That's why the, the slide is entitled, or all three. Because I think there's a sense in which if the fall of Babylon is the destruction of Jerusalem, and we're gonna, I'm not going to be able to show you why I think that's true at this point but if it is and the coming of Jesus in chapter 19 isn't the final return of Jesus but is the coming of the son of man on the clouds and great power and glory and vindicating his people which a lot of people would say it was then Jesus does come before the millennium because he comes before and after the millennium he comes in power and victory inaugurates the rule of his rule the kingdom of God governs the world through the church exalts people who die in faith in chains the devil, but he then returns again at the end of the millennium to banish sorrow and sighing and death and sorrow and all the rest. And so there's a sense in which you can kind of have your cake and eat it. But clearly that's not what most people who hold the premillennial view actually think, and I understand why. I just think there is a sense in which they might kind of both be right, and you can see why both are good. So if, that, if my, the view I'm holding is right, then the vindication and the victory of the martyrs have finally come, effectively, that the purpose of this passage is to say, look, after all your waiting and suffering and persevering, the martyrs are going to be raised, and in some ways that is the climax of the whole book, that that's the hope that the Christian has, is that no matter how much the enemy comes, scorpions or Apache helicopters, however you like to read them, in the end... Jesus is going to vindicate his people after their suffering and honor and restore them, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Reign throughout the church age, actually. Every, someone who, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle James, who gets killed without really getting much of a say in the book of Acts, that he's actually enthroned as a martyr and reign, is reigning with Christ right now. And, it, and the devil has been prevented from deceiving the nations, as represented by the number of nations that are in this room. That's the way I read it. Very happy to disagree with any, all, and sundry about it. But that's, I, you kind of have to land somewhere. And so that's what I think is going on. And as I say, that resource will help you if you want to go, I want, that's not, that's nowhere near enough. I want to get into this more. I hope that will be a helpful way in for you to give you good representatives of each view. Okay, I'm going to pause there and I'm going to see what we now have 19 minutes. Okay, so we always do a hard finish at half nine because otherwise you won't trust me next time I say it'll finish at half nine. So we always do that. Um, but uh, 
yeah, let's see. Um, any, any, any questions at all? <laughs> what a stupid question. Okay, so we have roving microphone people, I think. Um, okay, so Joe and, by the way, don't look at me. Joe and Roxy have the power now. I, don't, I have de- deferred my authority on this matters. Although, if this lady doesn't get a chance to ask a question, I think she's probably going to throw me down a flight of stairs later. So, okay. <laughs> Professor Kimmins. Andrew, can you comment on the practical difference it makes to one's Christian life, whether you have a premillennial or a millennial outlook? What are the, some of the dangers of yeah. each? Uh, I think, very good question. I think in sh- I'll be as short as I can with these answers. I think the danger of premill is unnecessary pessimism, and the danger of A on postmill is unnecessary triumphalism in a nutshell, because I think a premillennialist thinks the world is going to get worse and we need to be prepared for it, but that can lead to pessimism about mission and the effectiveness and growth of the kingdom. And an amill and postmill person would say, actually, we're living in the victory of Christ right now. Jesus will reign wherever the sun does his incessant journey run, and actually under it, and the Puritans, a number of the Puritans, in fact, some Christian evangelistic colonialism was postmill in the sense they went, we're going to disciple all the nations. They will all come flocking in. It's like, yeah, okay, we... We, we misunderstood the power of the ongoing power of sin and the threat, fact that the devil, although chained in that sense, is not in this sense. So I think both of them have a risk, but pre-mills would lean more pessimistic and post-mills would lean more optimistic slash triumphalistic. And yeah, they, there's a, that's a good question. There's a danger to both. Emotion, it's almost like an emotional danger, I think, that you could be at risk of on either side. Well, yeah, it does connect. To, I think restoration churches have almost always been A and post-mill rather than pre-mill, whereas the the Brethren movement is obviously another version of pre-mill, but actually it's a different spin on it than some of us who come from Brethren backgrounds, where there's actually a, a much more pessimistic view, in a sense, to the, the success of mission or not, because you're expecting all of the events of Revelation to take place in, in the coming few you know, weeks, months, and years, and in many schemas, you're expecting to be raptured out of it before it gets awful. And obviously, if you believe that, your attitudes to global mission, but also your attitudes to things like the environment and all sorts of things will be affected in a, in a way as well. So there are dangers on both sides. That's a good point. Um, who's got the microphone now? Me. Hello? Oh, yeah, great. <laughs> um, so I might have missed this because I came late. I apologize. But I've always been of the belief that Revelation shows that at some point in Revelation, when the trumpets are sounding, Jesus comes. And then all of the horrors happen after he's come and his people have been um, resurrected. Is that not the case from what you're saying? Well, that is the view that would be represented by a particular form of premillennialist thinking, which is that effectively the, the worst is yet to come, but it won't strike the church, um, which would be the view that it would be still quite, quite common, certainly in a lot of North American-influenced Christianity. It would usually be, a lot of people would call it dispensationalism. Uh, they might call it the pre-tribulation rapture. Um, and I'm getting a lot of ums and, you know, in the room. People going, I've heard that. I know what that is, right? And that's what I mean by the, what I've called the Left Behind series view, which is just in pop culture is the easiest way of people knowing what I mean. That's not the view I would take at all, no. I, I think that, that that view is, at a simple historical level, no one had ever taught that until about 1830, which doesn't prove it's wrong, but I think it means that most Christians until very recently hadn't, seen it as in the scriptures at all and what happened it was effectively so John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield and a few others popularly taught it in North America and it got into the Bible notes of the Schofield Bible which was a very popular Bible that you know with sort of King James Version Bible that was in 19th century America the Brethren movement 
took it on pretty much wholesale. So I've got you know, fa- you know, family and friends and the brethren, as you probably have too, some of us. And that, that in that sort of school of thought, a lot of the events of Revelation are interpreted more literally, but they're deferred to a time when the church is no longer in the world to experience them. And I just... I don't see that the rapture of the church out of the world and the world continuing is taught in any text of Scripture. Now, to make that case and to respond to the best arguments for it would take ages. But that, just so you know, that's where, yeah, I'm on a different page on that. And I don't think that means these people, I mean, the first time I encountered it, I was in Paris, actually, staying with a friend, and I got properly handbagged by an American guy who I don't think had ever met someone who wasn't a dispensationalist, and I'd never met someone who was. And we ended up in this kind of, what the, you know, just looking at each other, like, how on earth are we reading the same book and ending up on such different pages? Um, but I, if I had a quick why I think this is suspicious is like, this is not what any of the fathers or any of the reformers or any of the medieval church ever believed until North Americans less than 200 years ago. I think that's a, that to me raises a flag and goes, why? I, and if I was trying to make a short case why I would have doubts about it, I think then there's, to be honest, you don't have to read the whole of the New Testament with those questions in mind. And go, oh, right, okay, how do I sort that out? But I think the book of Revelation actually, on the, on the contrary, is written to reinforce and strengthen Christians who are going to suffer a great deal. And many Christians are going to be martyred. And I, in many ways, I think that if you look at world history now without a Western lens, I think it would be very hard to argue that the church has been saved from the worst of the trouble that's coming. I think you'd say, no, that some of the worst, in fact, some of the worst trouble in the whole history of the church happened in the very years this book was being written. And I don't think they escaped before it got bad. I think they... So, yeah, there's a lot... I, I'm, that's woefully inadequate, but that's a snapshot, I think. Um, Joe. Joe, have you honestly not been looking for questioners during that whole time? What on earth have you been doing? Sorry. Um, yeah, so this might be a really stupid question. Um, but you said that um, the crucifixion of Jesus for you symbolizes Satan being thrown in the pits and chained up and not being able to hurt us anymore. Um, then how can we still be having a spiritual war and still being yeah. attacked by him if he's chained up and can't hurt us anymore? Yeah, and that's a great question. And I think that in some ways represents one of the big... Whether you take the view I do here or not, I think that paradox exists anyway for all Christians because there is a sense in which the resurrection of Jesus clearly defeated the devil. I would sing it all the time. You've overcome. We would sing all of that stuff and affirm it even if you don't hold the view I do here. And you'd also affirm the ongoing reality of spiritual war. I, I think in the most helpful way I've heard about it, uh, you know, uh, effectively, what does the devil have the power to do? Um, and I think what the devil has the power to do is to, to accuse and to bring fear. You, and effectively, what we have to do is not to stand under accusation, isn't it? So that a lot of the devil's power is not the power to control your mind or to whatever, but the devil's power is to accuse, to lie, and that in that, he doesn't have the power in the sense of Revelation 20, in my reading, Revelation 20, he doesn't have the power to deceive the nations and stop the nations believing in the gospel. The, the gospel has the power to break the devil's power everywhere it's preached. And if the spirit will drive out the darkness wherever the light of the gospel shines. I believe that. But the devil does have the power to accuse and get mud, and mud will stick if you don't wash it off. Or to accuse and speak lies. Unless you know the truth, you will end up getting hoodwinked. And we're actually going to do the... We're talking about it today. Our preaching series in the autumn is going to be a lot of it is on that theme and the way in which, you know, freedom, spiritual warfare, the power of the truth to set us free, and so on. Because I think that's such an ongoing reality. But I think that's true whether or not you hold an Amil view. You you believe the devil does not have the power, but a lot of people don't know that, 
And so they believe what he's selling, or they buy what he's selling. And I think that's exactly the point. He doesn't have the right to do it, but you can, as Paul says, give him a foothold, a landing strip, and say, all right, there you go, have this bit of my life. And when you do that, you concede authority that he doesn't really, shouldn't really have. Um, Jesus, Matthew 28, at the end of the gospel, all authority has been given to me, right? The devil doesn't have it in that sense, but we can yield our God-given authority to him, and I think many Christians experience a lot of pain and danger because they do. So that would be a, a short take on that. Roxy. So this has been really interesting, and obviously Revelation is um, really complex. And just thinking about how De- Revelation connects back to Daniel and the timeline in Daniel and linking to Revelation. So Revelation chapter 6 to chapter 18, when we're talking about the tribulation, that time, is that somehow, I mean, I know the math is complex and it's the Jewish style of math, but is that... Bear with me one moment. So we're talking about some of the maths, and so we're now in the Jewish, thinking about what the Jewish calendar is now, and the period when we're talking about the trumpets linked to the Jewish calendar and the mathematics. So the timeline, and there being a seven-year period where the tribulation is worse. And so the 6,000 years on the, in the Jewish years... Uh, plus the 1,000 of the millennium, mm. making 7,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. So does that mean then the devil has, will be no more at that point? So I think the question is, when does the seven years start in, in that timeline? Are you familiar with anything of what yes. I've just garbled? I am. You've done very... By the way, can we just say round of applause both for the question and for the interpretation? Fantastic. Yeah, so that... That view that, the, that effectively history is divided into 7,000-year stints was actually taught very early in the church's history. It's not the view that I hold, but it's got a very long pedigree. Going back, I think maybe Justin Martyr taught it in the second century. It's like that effectively you have six days of 1,000 years each, and then the seventh day is 1,000 years, which is the millennium. So effectively the way they do it is say, well, world history will last 6,000 years. At the end of that, there'll be a thousand-year reign of Jesus, and then we're done. Now, that, in my, in my understanding, is that the view you're referring to? Yes. Yeah. So, in my understanding, to me, that reads symbolic numbers, literally, in a way that I don't think ultimately is helpful, and even has probably been made much more difficult by the length of human history. Um, in the sense that I think if you lived in 150 years after Christ, as people did when they first... Set, structured things that way you could end up with a sort of well actually basically we've only been around for this long and then after this time we'll be done and the reign of the church will you know be established and then creation will be wrapped up we're now 2,000 years after that and it still hasn't happened and that's part of the question but I think it's also worth saying that I don't think the numbers in Revelation are to be read literally generally anyway I think as we've seen the 12s the 7s the 144s the 4s the thousands and Many, many other than 666. I, I, I just don't think that's how writing like this worked in the ancient world. I think when we read other texts like Revelation, they, they play like that with numbers, like we do with imagery in cartoons or in movies. 
Um, and so for me, it's a, it's a slight misunderstanding of the genre, but it is an, an ancient view, and it's, it's certainly not a stupid view, it, but it's not the view that I hold. Okay. Don't, don't you think that, uh, maybe I'm looking at it literally, but um, we always had wars and rumours of wars from the dawn of time. Yeah. But now we've had 2,000 years. Uh, I, I think just after the 1900, we had the most bloodiest war ever yeah. in World War I. Yeah. And in 2001, we had the, yeah. the, the, the Twin Towers. And in the last 19 years, we've seen a heightening of human um, hatred towards one another, not so much in big wars, but what's happening in society. Don't you think that's happened from 2000 then? Yeah. Um, I, so I think it is true that as a result of partly as a result of technology and partly as a result of the nation-state, we have ended up killing more people in the last 100-odd years than we have in any previous century. In fact, I've heard it said, I don't know, I've never checked it, that the more people have been killed in the last 100 years than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Um, so I think if you were looking at the modern world and saying, is there evidence that the world is both getting better and worse, I think you would say, yes, there's lots of evidence. Life expectancy is longer, world population is bigger, most people die now after experiencing less physical pain than many of our ancestors would. So in some sense, the world's getting better, but many more human beings are being killed as a result of mass extermination and whatever than they ever were before. In that sense, the world is getting worse. And I think, in a way, biblical theology suggests both of those things are true. That actually, light gets brighter, darkness gets darker, you get the wheat and the weeds grow together. And until the end, when they get sorted, you've always got both. And so in a sense, I think that's a... To come back to David's question, actually, that would, there's a optimism and pessimism. You kind of got, well, I kind of got both because I think there's a lot to be grateful for living alive today. I'm not one of these people who goes, oh, gosh, we've killed so many people. We are the worst generation ever. I'm like, well, not really. I'm, I'm glad I live in a day when I don't have anesthetics when I go to the dentist. Like, you know, but I also don't want to be the guy who's like, it's wonderful. The world's all here. Just think, hang on a second. Look at the, look at the things we do to one another. Okay. So I think, in a sense, both are true, and that represents probably, I think, a biblically rounded picture of human history, which is humans are both glorious and incredibly creative and wonderful and incredibly savage and sinful and broken, and so we'd expect history run by them to involve both of those things. Um, so I would, in that, in that sense, I would I totally agree with what you're saying, but say I think there's, there's always two sides to that picture. Okay, we, we've only got four minutes left. Just briefly... Um... There's a, a burning question since I became, since I was, became born again. Um, and tonight we had a lot of talk of animals and creatures mm. that, that God has used. My question to you is, does animals have a soul um, when they die, if that goes somewhere special? And would they be resurrected in the days that wow. uh, the end days? Uh, <laughs> I will be, I'll be very quick if I may. I think in the Hebrew sense, animals have a soul in the sense that soul in Hebrew just means effectively the breath of life. In that sense, they do. They would have a, the Hebrew word would be nefesh. They have a, the breath of life in them. But I don't think by what, I think what you probably mean is, do they have, if you like, a spiritual personality that they then get raised with a new body? I would say no, but there's plenty of people with dogs and cats who get angry when I say that. Um, so let's just suspend judgment on it for now, but I personally don't think so, okay? I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge of where the microphone is, so don't throw things at me, okay? Yes, sir. Uh, I just want to understand why you keep saying that's your view and, you know, you're kind of leaving us with more questions than answer. We came here to get... <laughs> uh, 
I mean, it, it would have been better if you said that's my position and this is the position of the church so we know where we stand because yes. I don't want to go out here and I'm still saying that's his view, this is my view, and everyone can have their yes. view and then we're all over the place, so, you know. Yes. Um, I, I think it would be, be fair to say that whenever I say this is my view, I'm saying three things bundled together, um, but I'm saying it in a very British deferential way, which may not be the best way of communicating, but I'm saying this is what I believe having done a lot of work and study on it, but because I've done a lot of work and study on it, I also know that there are very smart people who think I'm wrong, right? That's the, but I'm saying this is what I, but I still think it, and I would actually be prepared to debate it and engage, and I do. The second thing I'm saying is this is the view that we are going to teach through the series. So this is not like, I'm, you're, you're not getting one view from Steve and one view from me, and then next week somebody else preaches, and then Joe gets up and says, oh, last week that was just Andrew's view, I'm going to say something different. We've got, we get our ducks in a row about this stuff, and we talk together and just go, I think this is where we are collectively. In fact, we started the planning, theological planning of this series months before we started the series, because we knew it was going to be a, a, just a difficult book. So I'm saying this is what I think, but this is also what we're going to teach together. I think it also then would reflect a view that all of the elders are happy with us teaching as a church as well. That, that's, like, that's an important thing that behind the scenes, we're going, this isn't like, there are details here where we could go, that's a... If someone goes, the locust scorpions, to be honest, I'm not sure that's a demon, then that's, we're not going to fall out over that. But the, the framework of reading Revelation this way is something that we would say together, yeah, this is what we, we commend this to you as a way of reading the Bible. But I also want to be rightly honoring of the fact that, as our sister Dan here's just said, some people have been brought up with a very different reading of the whole book for many years. And I don't want to throw that under the bus and say these guys aren't aren't believers or they're stupid or I, I just but that isn't the view that we have here so when I say this is my view that's the kind of thing I'm trying to communicate and I if it's come across as too apologetic and I I, I was going to say I apologize <laughs> <laughs> um, but I hope you you see my spirit I, in in many ways I think the risk with a book like this is more of being over dogmatic than of being over fudgy but I still at the end of it would want you to go I, I think this is what it means, and I think we'll preach it this way, and I think you, if you believe this, it'll do you good. That's what I'm saying to you, but I can't be certain of it all. Sorry. <laughs> Steve has the final question. Um, he has raised his hand, and I'm, I think he's probably going to overrule his daughter-in-law's desire to give the mic to someone else. Um, I think probably that all of us have picked up an interpretation of Revelation from our church history and our denominational background more than we're aware. Hmm. In a sense, it's like just, it's in the background all the time. Yeah. Uh, so I think that would be helpful at some point to just to make us aware that if you've probably from a brethren you got this way, yeah. from a Pentecostal has probably got those kind of themes coming in. Yeah. And then the, and the follow-up question is, where would you advise us to go and do continued research into this? Mm. Because obviously where you drink... Yeah. You know, if you're watching some American television evangelist, it might not be the best place to go and yeah. answer these type yeah. of questions. Yeah, that's a because question. where you drink or read shapes you more yeah. than you're aware. You yeah, are less objective than we think we are. So, any guidance on? Yeah, no, that's a really good, that's a really good point. We so the the series guide that we gave out at the start of the series that you would have got, the, you know, the sort of the, the booklet that summarizes what's going on, so King's Life would have a series of recommended reading in it at different levels. I try and rank the books we recommend by one, two, and three chilies, like a curry. Um, most of us are probably going to want to start with a one chili book, and the book that we'd recommended and sold is Phil Moore's book, Straight to the Heart of Revelation. 
which is a really readable, accessible way in. Uh, John Hosier's book, The Lamb, the Beast, and the Devil, is a great treatment of the book as well. And then as we go up through the Chile rankings, we mentioned another couple of commentaries which are a bit bigger and chunkier for those of us who actually already know the basics and want to go in a bit deeper. Um, Ian Paul's book, and then Greg Beale and Peter Lightheart. So there's a lot of stuff you, you can read. I think that the key, in a way, that the, the, the reason to try and tie together Steve's question and your question is actually, we, we need to come to this, it, uh, effectively, there's a, a posture of humility that we come to and say, what, how, how, whereas most of the church, most of the time, agreed, and much of the time, actually, Revelation is not as difficult as it sounds. Much of the time, people have said, well, we... You know, the church from a very long time has said, we think that's Nero, and we think that's talking about this, and that's talking about that. And then there are some areas you can hold a bit more lightly. But the basic framework that most in history have taken is quite different from the framework you might found taught on Christian television. And so as you'll probably pick up that from Steve's question, and certainly from my answers, that there, we would be more skeptical. I think as elders we, you know, and teaching team collectively, be more skeptical about the frameworks you would often find articulated on some popular television, which is often bound up with a, quite a specifically North American approach, both to geopolitics and the, and the Holy Land, as well as to reading eschatology. And I, that's not to say it's all wrong, but that's... I think, we would, I think I'd be speaking for all of us. I'd say collectively we would be just cautious about that and more comfortable with the historic position of the church that's been around for much longer. I don't mean of King's Church, I mean the global church. Um, back to, the, back to the, the, you know, the Middle Ages and the Fathers and so on. Um, so that's, that would be as a sort of summary take. Okay, let me pray for us and then we'll, then we'll go. Father, we thank you so much for your word and I pray that we would, in having heard it and thought about it and reading it, it would continue to bless us and do us good. Lord, we take your promise seriously. And when it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are all those who hear it and all those who do it because the time is near, we take you at your word. We believe we will be blessed. And we ask, Lord... Pour out your blessing on this church and on all of the brothers and sisters here and the families they represent. Lord, bless us for thinking through your word. We pray for even for the fact that people have come out after work to come and do this. I pray for blessing on us as we think through biblical truth. That we would see the victory of Jesus, the horror of Satan and sin, but the ultimate triumph of the church in Christ. More clearly because we came here tonight, not less clearly because we're confused about flying locusts or whatever it may be. Lord, I pray illuminate the big truths of Christianity to us. Help us feel the victory of Christ in our bones, we pray, as a result of coming here tonight. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Thank you for coming.